0: Tonight's talk is part two of Reflection, Rage, and Rebellion, and Ardent Patience. (laughs) For those of you who go outside in the woods, especially in the back here, um, I think it's a very interesting time of autumn. It's the beginning of the time when you can start to really see through the woods. So the woods start to become transparent as a lot of the leaves have fallen. And It's like, you know, this carpet of beautiful leaves and this carpet of needles just has this way of kind of soothing us with this protective natural energy that's amazing. Uh, and I feel that, We're at this place in the retreat. It's like um, we've been here long enough where the underlying patterns of greed, hatred, and delusion are starting to become more visible. Just like if you look into the woods. And this process will continue, and that's why I love this retreat so much in the fall, because, you know, each, each couple of days you'll start to see that you can see more deeply into the woods, and you'll start to feel that same process with yourself. Another part of um, this that can be a little hidden for us is that the more mindful we become, usually the less mindful we feel. And if you have any sense of how that's been going, it's amazing. And the reason for this is that because When we get more mindful, we actually start seeing how much we're missing. And what, you know, I joke with people because I say, if you went into a grocery store right now in Barrie, you'd probably get a sense that you're quieter than you think. You know? (laughs) But how do you know? I mean, it's fathomless. It just, this is sort of the kind of, we're winding into that place where it becomes really hard to measure, um, and we, we become more vulnerable. You know, so at the time it's becoming more fathomless, often we start comparing more. We start comparing with each other. We compare with ourselves, with ourselves. It's like we're in competition with ourselves from this morning. You know, I mean, it's amazing what can happen, but often these self-assessment tapes happen, because we don't really want to feel just that vulnerability. And of course, with this uh, great mindfulness and equanimity, we start to see that they're just comparing thoughts. They're just self-assessment thoughts. They're okay. We don't have to do anything with them but let them appear and disappear by themselves. When I first um, came to this formal kind of meditation in 1975, uh, I wasn't aware of my motivation, but I really wanted um, to end the pain I was in. And I was so desperate, and I had no idea really how desperate I was, but I really was willing to die meditating. You know, and that, that's something that's very strong in me. You know, it's, it's like a mikazi, kamikaze pilot. I would do anything to understand, I'd do anything to understand suffering. But I didn't really have that, any clarity around what the difference was between ending pain and ending suffering. And they're very different. And so the question this morning was really important and interesting because, you know, of course we don't want pain. I mean, that's so unnatural. You know, in and, and, and many ways we have to look at how do we learn to navigate through the world as children if something's really going to burn us that the body tells us, ouch, you know, this is healthy. You know, just all the different ways that we learn even to develop preferences are ways to just kind of learn how to be in the world. So, of course, often our motivation at first for meditation is not maybe pure, pure motivation. You know, that's what we're doing here. (laughs) We're, We're purifying motivation. We're starting to see the difference between being motivated to get rid of pain and being motivated to understand and have compassion for pain. The deeper we go in the practice, the deeper we understand this. So essentially for me, I wanted, I wanted concentration when I came to practice. I wanted the pain to end. I wanted everything to stop. But I could never have explained that to anybody in this language. And it took me years to have a language where we can say here, yeah, concentration is seclusion. It's seclusion from the range of joy and sorrow. It's seclusion from pain. It's meant to be as neutral as we can the object. It's meant to be the sanctuary, somewhere we can develop flexibility of mind so that we know it's okay to close off from how life is, as well as open to how life is. So the, the pure concentration, the ability to just go back to one thing, like the breath, or the ability to just do metta again and again and again and again, that is not opening up to how life is, that's repressing how life is. And it's important, it's not an avoidance, it's not something we need to overestimate or underestimate, but it's very important to have a place, a sacred space, a sanctuary. And so some of the art of meditation is developing that, and we'll, we'll have times in practice where it's just natural. We'll feel pulled into that, and that's great. You know, and this is why we have interviews, not to have you suffer during your retreat, You know, the retreat to rehearse, right? It's not meant to be a torture where, You know, you're, the art of an interview is to really know, wow, to see what we go through before we go into an interview. Yeah, but it's also meant to help us see, you know, what's the difference between choiceless awareness where we're just letting the attention go with what is happening, Facing how life is, and what 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 is important in that for us to know and to understand, and what is it? Why is it important to anchor again? This is the the art of meditation. I found a book by Henry David Thoreau recently. It's new. It's called Letters to a Spiritual Seeker, and it's a series of letters he wrote um, a man. Uh, nearby in Worc- in Worcester. And uh, there is a slight judgment about the human world in this. <laughs> Just to keep in mind. <laughs> <clears throat> it would be more respectable if men, as has been said before, instead of being such pygmy desperates, were giant despairers, Emerson says that his life is so unprofitable and shabby for the most part that he is driven to all sorts of resources and among the rest to men, meaning to humans. I tell him that we differ only in our resources. Mine is to get away from men. They very rarely affect me as grand or beautiful. But I know that there is a sunrise and a sunset every day. And I can't read the whole thing, but then it skips to this place where um, he's obviously ready to get away from the giant despairers. (laughs) So he says, The other evening I was determined that I would silence this shallow din, that I would walk in various directions and see if there was not to be found any depth of silence around. As Bonaparte sent out his horsemen in the Red Sea on all sides to find shallow water. So I sent forth my mounted thoughts to find deep water. I left the village and paddled up the river to Fairhaven Pond, which is nearby, and as the sun went down, I saw a solitary boatman disporting on the smooth lake. The falling dews seemed to strain and purify the air, and I was soothed with an infinite stillness. I got the world, as it were, by the nape of the neck and held it under in the tide of its own events till it was drowned, and then I let it go downstream like a dead dog. (laughs) Slight aversion. (laughs) Vast hollow chambers of silence stretched away on every side, and my being expanded in proportion and filled them, then first could I appreciate sound and find it musical. (laughs) We do that. You know, we really like it when we're concentrated, you know, until maybe we're sitting in here and everybody goes out. And I spent so much of my practice in this hall. You know, it's like when people would, the bell would ring and people would move out, I'd treat that as low tide. Everybody would go out, and then the walking would end, and I'd still be sitting in here, and I'd call people coming back in, oh, it's high tide. You know, and I just kind of just get very concentrated and enjoy that feeling of people coming in and out, in and out. But you know when you're sitting there and somebody does something, like they start writing in their notebook. Are we that happy then, right? It's like, what is the difference between concentration and freedom? And freedom is opening up to whatever's happening in the present moment. It means that we include whatever's happening, and it's okay. Whether it's a knee pain, a sound, or a thought you know, whatever it is. So this is, this dance back and forth between the beautiful stillness that Thoreau is describing, but also we're sitting here with a hundred giant despairers as well. You know, it's like we have to, it's like learning both, learning, learning that art of freedom. So if we get overwhelmed by aversion or aversion to aversion, we feel, it, we feel defeated. And there's a lot of doubt and fear that arises because we can't trust our own experience. So the question of it really being okay for us when we have to close down, and it's a healthy solitude, it's a healthy seclusion, it's a healthy concentration. And when we can open up and be with the flow of experience, that's a healthy, moment-to-moment opening to how things are, facing life as it is. And we can get attached to either and say, this is how it should be. And that's attachment. That's suffering. That's dukkha. So we learn the art of the skillful means when it's appropriate to be more focused, when it's appropriate to be more open. And out of this... The motivation is meant to be that the skillful means comes out of empathy for our own suffering. So we can be motivated by compassion, and when that starts to develop, we'll feel more protected. When we start trusting this art of when to be more concentrated, when to be more doing the moment-to-moment concentration, I mean fixed concentration and moment-to-moment concentration, As we start to learn that art, we'll feel more protected. We'll feel more protected by the mindfulness. We'll feel more protected by the um, concentration. And then the little (laughs) place where freedom starts to um, become apparent or oppression becomes apparent is when there's a shift from pleasant to unpleasant, whether it's a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought. You know, it's like, um, do we disconnect from our experience? And that disconnection from the experience is suffering. And it hurts, because we might be flowing along with our moment-to-moment concentration and our moment-to-moment mindfulness, and then maybe the next moment there's something unpleasant and we disconnect out of aversion. And we've left being with the truth. And in that moment, we feel separate. This is how the transparency starts to happen. Just like walking through the woods and you start to see through the woods, you're getting quiet enough to start to see the roots of suffering really clearly. And what do you do when you see yourself disconnecting? Do you feel like, oh, no. I'm failing at the practice. I should, be, I should be able to open to this unpleasantness. Or can we connect with the disconnection? Can we start to love the aversion? Can we start to, to love the rage or whatever that comes up? So what I started to see about myself is that um, when I would disconnect from the aversion, I would start to um, abandon myself. And I'd start to feel defeated by the aversion. So I have many examples of this. And and this morning I was talking about how we can start to relate to the appearance of aversion with investigation. And we can start to relate to the appearance of aversion to pain with compassion. And those things really shift us from being oppressed unfree by the appearance of aversion, or freer and freer to feel it, to not be oppressed by it, to let it move through like the sound of a bird. I had a, um, one of my first students here, I think it was 1981, um, uh, had a lot of aversion coming up. And um, it was so intense He used to walk to um, Athol every day. And for those of you who don't know where this is, it's quite far away. (laughs) You know, and it it was just amazing to me that he could just actually physically walk that far. You know, I don't know, how far would you say it is? 15 miles, you know, so it was a 30 mile trip. It took most of the day, (laughs) clearly. and, you know, I just kind of worked with it. It was like, wow, you know, I <laughs> guess a lot of restlessness is <laughs> coming <on>. up. <laughs> I guess you need a sort of just don't walk slow, right, you know, because <laughs> none of this back and forth stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really interesting to watch this um, student friend over time because the next year for the three-month retreat, he walked to Petersham, Petersham not to Athel, which was much, still, by, by my standards, you know, I wouldn't even walk there ever. You know, <laughs> it's unthinkable. You know, but, you know, you know, you have a long day of practice. It's possible <laughs> if, if there's enough restlessness and aversion. The next three-month retreat, this is within three years. That retreat, he never left this building. I mean, it was that dramatic a change. It's like this just shift from just needing to get away from that aversion, and that was skillful at that point in time. That's the kind of big pasture he needed, and then to see that shift to just this real deep pulling in to find the to find the space inside it was amazing for me to see, and then over time, it was just like. Just to see someone go from that amount of being oppressed by that rage and that aversion to be so free. He would come in for interviews and he would just sit down and little tears would come down of gratitude. To feel that unoppressed, you know, just, just to feel that, that lessening of that weight, of that burden. And I think that we can all reflect, <laughs> reflection, rage, rebellion. I mean, really reflect on where we get caught with with aversion, because for some people it might not be um, a built-up um, resisted energy, where it goes from like a slight irritation to maybe a little fear or you know aversion to. Um, terror or rage. It's like we might find ourselves in different aspects of that, but they're just levels of intensity. Mm -hmm. They're still the same thing, which is a pushing away or withdrawing from the truth of the moment, and we feel very separate. In the last talk, I described that situation I was in where I really had to stand up this leader of this gang and just take that energy of rage and just say, no, this is unacceptable. But we also have to do that internally at times. And I'd like to give you a few examples. Um, there was a time when I went to a Goenka retreat. Um, it was, I think, one of his first retreat in Massachusetts. And there were 250 of us under this um, tent that didn't have even edges to this tent, you know, sides. It was just this roof. Uh, And new students aren't allowed to be up front. You have to be far away. And so I was a brand new student. So I was like way in the back and, and there wasn't enough room. So there were all these new people in the back. We were all squished. I mean, really squished. Just knee-to-knee, you know, butt-to-butt, just like squished into this place. And, you know, they don't do walking meditation, so it was getting kind of claustrophobic back there for me. I need space, you know. I'm I'm an aversion type. So I'm sitting there, and, you know, this is like, I I grew up on this style of practice, but I was wanting to learn about that other style, and I'm sitting there, no walking, right, you know, and uh, we're sweeping, going up and down with our body, and this woman in front of me, when she would have some aversion, she would like, like move her body and kick me. Like she'd kick me. And I, you know, it's like, I was finding that very unacceptable. You know? <laughs> and it was so painful. I mean, Hour after hour, no walking meditation. And every time she had aversion, she'd kick and kick and kick. And I was just like, and I was resisting it. I was disconnecting. I wasn't allowing myself to admit how much aversion I was having to this. And it was just building and building and building. And it's just, there was this moment when I saw, oh my God, there's this chain. It's like there's this change. She's experiencing something unpleasant. She's having aversion. She moves. It's unpleasant for me. I'm having an aversion. You know. And it was just like watching this feeling of this oppression just being passed from her to me. And was I going to pick it up and strangle myself with it? This was so important because there was a part of me that just says, no, I am going to understand this. I'm not going to be oppressed by this. We have to get these places at times in practice. You couldn't sit here day after day after day and walk without getting to these places where it's just like, no, I'm going to understand this. That's the rebellion. It's like there's a the reflection. There's, you know, just like, no, you know, I'm going to, be, I'm going to look at this until I understand it. And this, this is a shift... Um, from um, judging the appearance of pain in the world to the intention to understand. And this is huge. We know that's the difference between freedom and oppression. And this investigation is just like has continued for me. When I came to sit here with Sayada Upandita for for three months in eighty four. He was a very, very demanding teacher. He was really hard on me, extremely hard on particularly me. Um, and so he insisted that all of us, the 20 of us that sat that retreat, uh, sit in this hall for a month before we went off to our rooms. And all of us were used to just disappearing into our rooms during retreats at that point. So it was just sort of, you know, we were all sitting in here. And it was the first time... This introduction of notebooks of writing during a retreat I'd ever seen. You know, none of us ever taught it; we'd never seen it, and everyone had their little notebooks, right? But there was a rule. There was a rule that us, you know, giant despairers were supposed to be following, which was you weren't allowed to write in the hall. If you were going to write something, you were supposed to walk outside, and not even walk in the upper walking room. You were supposed to write in the coat room or in the dining room, very quietly. That was. Those were the rules. So I always have extra aversion if somebody's breaking the rules, right? You know, that gives you more ammunition for being right, right? So (laughs) I was sitting in here, and this woman next to me, on top of it all, not only did she write during the sittings, but she had a pencil. (laughs) Instead of a pen. And so to me, this was like... (laughs) really obnoxious. It was so painful because I'm a, I'm a sound person, right? Heaven and hell happens for me at my ear door. If it's the sound of a bird, I'm in heaven. If it's the sound of a human breaking a rule, (laughs) (laughs) forget it. There is no mercy. You know, it's just like they are wrong and I am right. And, you know, and so I was sitting here and just like, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was just unbelievable. She loved to write in this thing. I mean, she would just, five minutes would go by, and I'd just, I'd open my eyes and I'd watch her, you know, lift it up and it'd be like, oh no, not the pencil, you know. And I would eat, <laughs> and I would even think about leaving the retreat, you know, and going back somewhere and somebody saying, well, how was your retreat? And I, I would say, It was awful. There was this person writing with a pencil, right? (laughs) You know, right, Michelle, you know, (laughs) see you later. Yeah, I can't wait to do that practice. (laughs) Really inspiring to people. (laughs) You know, so I do this whole scenario about, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this way, which, of course, we try to talk ourselves out of it. And so, like, sitting after sitting would go by, and I would actually... I actually learn the sound of her footsteps. Like, you know, I could hear her. She used to come in that... <laughs> that's, like, that's how conditioned I got, like Pavlov's dog. I'd, like, sort of... I didn't know what time she was coming. I knew when she went to the bathroom. I mean, it was incredible. You know, just, like... And then I'd feel her coming in, creak, 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 and I'd start sweating. Just the anticipation... And then, you know, you could see how I used to, like, try to talk myself out of this. This is a pencil, Michelle. Like, you know, get over it. It's a pencil. You know, but it didn't work. I would just be, she'd sit down and be like, and then, you know, everybody, you know, everyone's quiet, right? Finally, it's quiet. It's like waiting, anticipating. You know, my whole retreat became waiting for her to lift up this pencil. You know, it was so painful. And it was just the same. These, how, you know, you can probably tell these are my retreats, how they go, where there's something that, there's some sound that's just, I think it's driving me crazy until I realize that it's aversion that's driving me crazy. It's not anything outside. And we get fooled again and again and again. We're suckers. We think that the pleasant thing is outside of ourselves and we want it. And we think the unpleasant thing is outside of ourselves, and we don't want it. And we don't realize that it's happening here. It's a mental feeling that's happening inside, and it's conditioned. And again, I got to this place, like I started to make a calendar, because I could go in my room in a month. You know, Upandita said we had to sit there for 30 days. So it's like, that was my next escape into the future, okay. In 25 days, it'll be okay, you know. But that wears out, right? You know, after a while, and then, you know, we find that we find ourselves bargaining, bargaining, bargaining. Finally, investigation. And investigation is the second factor of enlightenment. And it's literally described as when you're in a dark room, that it's like turning on a light. It's that profound. And it's said that it lights up the three characteristics of existence. It, it's when investigation appears, it makes it possible for us to understand Anicca. It makes it possible for us to understand Dukkha. It makes it possible for us to understand Anatta. It's so important. And again, the good news is that the aversive types tend to have to resort to this. <laughs> I used to call it mindfulness as a last resort. You know, it's just like, well, finally, maybe I should try being with this, right? You know, and when my attention would get really close to the sound and the texture of the sound, I would break the barrier. I would break the barrier between myself, so-called me, and that sound. There wouldn't be any sense of duality. And then that's the doorway for me. Usually this is how I go deep. It's something unpleasant. I'm struggling. And then it's actually... I've learned to love the aversion and love that what I'm thinking is my obstacle because when I get close to the experience, I, I touch the truth. I let the universe touch me. So it's the doorway into understanding. And then the appearance of a thought will be the same texture as the appearance of that sound of the pencil. And the, the, the texture of... Of sen- a sensation in my body will be the same texture. You see, there's a, there's a just a, 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 an ability to break through duality, to break through any sense of difference, and there's freedom. But that was not easy. And of course, after thirty days, I went to my room. Right. I thought, okay, you know, we always think there's a better place, right? And then I think two days into that, you know, and there's always this feeling like, oh boy, now it's going to be much more control, less qu- you know, less interruption, right? And uh, something happened with the sewer over there, and the sewer truck came, <laughs> and it was doing this thing, this huge machine outside my window. I swear I attract it, you know. It's like, I swear it's just like, okay, she wants to be free, ha ha ha, you know, you know, and it's just like. I finally had escaped away from the giant despairers into my room, and this huge machine just grinded all day outside my window and and until that point of again, oh, yeah, it's just sound. It's just unpleasant. It's just aversion. It's okay. So investigation is that ability to ask ourselves a question, what is happening now, free from any past ideas about it? When you're walking, it doesn't have to be some intense thing. It can be boredom. You can get fully liberated paying attention to boredom. It doesn't matter what it is. It, that's what's so funny. It doesn't matter if it's a sewer truck or a pain in the back of the head or a really little thought of the future because it's just planning. And the moment where we just investigate enough to see that it's just thinking, we're free. So, this is why investigation is so important because that's it again, it's that ability to go from the reflection to really that it's a rebellion to say, No, I'm not going to get caught in conditioning, even though it's awesomely (laughs) apparent how powerful conditioning is, mindfulness is saying, no, in the present moment, I don't have to be caught in this. So when aversion appears or fear appears or wanting appears, there can be the intention to understand. And if at first there's an intention to protect, it's okay. It's like let that happen. Let the intention to protect come, and then out of that can come the intention to understand. Because usually we're experiencing the unpleasant or pain as a threat. Yeah? And again, it it requires that um, real discriminating wisdom to understand well, what's really happening. So we've heard this many times, but change isn't changing the experience, but change is the attention that that cares. Change is the attention that connects with the experience, and that gives life, you know. So if we can let the sound of a car out on Pleasant Street come and go by itself, if we can let the sound of my voice right now come and go by itself, We can let the sound of the breath or the feeling, sensation of the breath come and go by itself. Then we can start letting aversion come and go by itself. And we don't have to feel defeated by the resistance to it. We can start letting fear come and go by itself. And we do this because we care so much. And out of that care can come the strength to do this, the strength to investigate And so I found in my own life, you know, believe it or not, that I love the rage, I love the aversion, because it has been um, my doorway into investigation. You know, and that's pretty amazing to me that I can even say that, given how much I struggled with it. So aversion and all the various (laughs) ranges of intensity of it um, is a call to investigation. But remember, so is wanting. Wanting mind is the same thing. It's just wanting versus not wanting. But they're they're both a call to investigation, but they're also a call to compassion. And I just wanted to um, define that a bit tonight. The Buddha taught that the proximate cause for the appearance of compassion is to connect with um the helplessness we feel in the face of suffering. And I think that's so important. You know, that's such an amazing thing to say that the proximate cause for the arising of compassion is really connecting with the helplessness we feel in res- you know in response to the amount of suffering. You know, so that's vulnerability, yeah that's really connecting to dukkha again. When I first did this practice, I um, was here with Sayada Upandita again, <laughs> and uh, it was two months, and I was shifting from two months of metta into the compassion practice, and I'd never really learned it. You know, I'd read about it, I you know, talked about it, But, you know, this was jumping in on a level that I had never done before. And I would keep shifting from going into the pain to the point where I would drown in it. And then I would step out so far back, it was like I was on Mars looking down on planet Earth. You know, really needing to distance myself. Uh, and I kept struggling with like going too far in and sobbing and crying and you no know, and stepping too far back and being too disconnected. And, and the best way I can describe this is really that if say I had a huge big sore on my hand tonight and you saw it, you know, one way to deal with that would be to really empathize so much that you were like, oh, it's too bad, right? And the other would be like, oh, right, that's you know, let me just kind of step back and look at that from a distance. Well, what I learned in doing the compassion practice that not, that not that either of those are wrong or bad, but that they're not compassion, and that often my way is actually to go in too deep. You know, I jump in, and then I, out of going through the grief or the sorrow, I find the care. So really what we want with suffering is really that ability for someone to care about it yeah it's a very light touch you're not in it because if you're in it and it's painful it isn't compassion compassion feels good it feels wonderful you know and when i finally figured that out i was outside on pleasant street doing this practice and i just i just was like who left this out You know, like, who left this out of kindergarten? Who left this out of first grade? I mean, given the amount of suffering in this world, just, you know, just it's unfathomable to think that we're not taught it because it's it's like you're transforming your understanding of pain into this care, and it's strengthening. You can take more, and you can take more, and you can take more because it's so wonderful to care about it. Not that you might start there, you know, with that intensity of understanding, but certainly it's an option whenever you feel irritable or whenever you feel upset or afraid to remember, oh, I can care about this. I can step back enough to not be so in it that I'm drowning in it, that I can open up and care about it. And this this is something you can practice. It's not something that you're born with and it's tough luck if you didn't get any this lifetime. You know, it's like most of us don't start with this huge well of metta or compassion. The Buddha taught that it was rare, actually, and that it did need to be cultivated. Cultivated. When I started the loving-kindness practice with Saida Upandita, I was in Australia for two months. Um, and for years I'd been sitting with Upandita, and he's tough, right? I mean, tough, tough, tough. In that retreat there was another monk, and the, someone had set up the interview, so I saw Upandita one day and this monk the other day, and Upandita this day. And I was like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> I was like so happy that I'd just get a day where somebody wasn't really, you know, pushing, right? So seven days went by of doing the metta practice, and I, I came into the monk, and I, I was just really, I, fi- I just really dropped into it, and I was connecting to it, and I was kind of blissed out. So I went into this interview, and the monk asked me questions about it, and I was just kind of blissed out, and then he said, what would happen if I um, hit you over the head right now? <laughs> And I was like, probably not metta. (laughs) And he started laughing. But it was so funny. It was just like, you know, you can feel like you get a taste of it, but it might not be strong enough like the Buddha that could stop an elephant with it, right? And he was teasing me. But then, like, suddenly my interviews changed, and I was with Upandita every day again. And it was so funny because I got this one little fun time with this monk for a week and then I had to shift to um, <laughs> the grind again but I'm so grateful because he really taught me Vipassana and he really taught me the the Brahma Vihars. Um, and it's kind of like describing that student that just comes in and cries it's like when you, when you really receive it you know there's nothing like it it's the greatest gift in the world when Martin Luther King um, left the south of the United States to start um, heading into the north of the United States um No one expected that the North would be more painful than the South. Uh, And he went to Chicago and led a march through the streets of Chicago. And again, no one expected the extraordinary violence that happened that day when they went through Chicago. And there were snipers everywhere, gunshots happening everywhere. And they had to helicopter Martin Luther King out. um, And he was interviewed on the helicopter and when he was in the helicopter and this interview it was just so upset you know and he's like how you know how could this happen how you know he was just so upset at the amount of pain and suffering and Martin Luther King this this film clip has been so inspiring to me in my life because instead of kind of going really awful he got this huge smile on his face you know just like so deeply connected to the source of um, his motivation and what he was doing. And he said, oh yeah, all we're doing here is bringing the evil out in the open. That was his motivation, to see it, to bring it out. Is that your motivation for being here? because that's partly what we're doing here. We're, we keep thinking we're going to get rid of this greed, hatred, and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just like one more sitting and it'll be over. You know, we tend to have a short-range view here. You know, the long-enduring mind is sometimes, you know, we don't, we, you know, culturally we're so used to getting a little degree or a little t-shirt that says I did it or whatever, but, you know... <laughs> This is not how this practice goes. You know, it's like you learn to experience aversion, you get some skill with it, so you can face more. And you learn to get some skill with, with um, attachment so that, not that you go happily off into the sunset, it never appears again. It's that, so you have skill when it comes up, so that you're free, so that you don't have to get rid of it. Why would you even need to get rid of it? There's no need to if you see it clearly. So we need great tenderness um, with the appearance of these because they're painful with aversion and attachment. And especially the places in our body, you know, where, you know, if you see, look, just one lifetime any place where we didn't really open to aversion or attachment, often the body will hold it for us. You know, and I saw over the years that I tended to hate and reject the places in my body that were painful. And it took me a long time to figure out that these places that were painful were actually sacrificing themselves for me until I could finally feel the pain in the mind. It's the mind, it's the aversion or the attachment. And I started seeing these great places like the lower back and the back of my neck as as a sacred place. It's a sacred place, it's a sacrificial area. Here we are just doing everything we can to try to get rid of it, right? And it's been protecting us. So again, what is our motivation? and when there's chronic areas of the body one stays away from them a lot i used to just again kamikaze hold nose dive in go in there for hours and hours and i learned that the line between pure exploration and mindfulness is very thin that suddenly you know i'm there because i'm getting rid of it right it's just it's very easy for that to happen And it's okay when when one notices the shift in motivation. We're not there just purely exploring tightness, throbbing, stabbing. You know, (laughs) how long can you explore stabbing until it starts to turn into, gee, I wish this change, right? (laughs) And so when that wish it would change a little comes, it's okay, that's just great okay, that's why we develop seclusion, that's why you learn to move away from things, that's freedom in that moment it's flexibility, it's not avoidance, it's a healthy, skillful means and again that's the art of meditation could be a three-part talk. <laughs> um, yeah, but I wanted to um, talk a little bit about, you know, obviously I've been working with aversion for a long time, so I'll speed up myself in time a bit. And uh My dad uh, was more formidable than the gang member, the leader I mentioned, so he was not somebody I could hit over the head with a beer bottle and, you know, win. You know, it was sort of like it would be death if I did anything like that. So I had to kind of learn other skills of survival up against that kind of violence. And I learned pretty much to keep a really big distance once I left, Um, really big difference. And when people would come in for interviews and say, gee, I only call my family once a week, I'd be like, oh, really? <laughs> you know, like it was bad or something, and I'd be like, once a week, wow. You know, it would seem so intimate in comparison what I had to do. But I learned that the distance I found was the distance with which I could feel metta. It's like I had to find a distance to the point where I could really wish well, and I found it. And it started to become a lot out of this practice that I could visit, you know, And but I would never, I never stayed overnight after I was 16 years old. That was just how it was, and that was good. Um, but I always dreaded the day when my father would get um, helpless and need help because I knew eventually I was going to have to face... Um, this great aversion (laughs) and the aversion he had for me. So um, about, what was it? The, yeah, the week before he fell, um, when he fell... You know it it became that I had to intervene, and I knew it was getting there the year before he fell. I knew it was getting close, but I knew even my oldest sister, who is the favorite and she she drinks and smokes so much that you know she 's fortified when she gets in the house you know <laughs> whereas i don 't you know she develops this incredible art of fortification that I admire, but i can 't do you know so she she gets there and she can 't even handle it right, even with that immensity of you know, drugs that, you know, I knew I couldn't do it. So um, the weekend before he fell, we both met there. We always would meet, go go there. Um, and he decides to go to the cemetery uh, to visit my mother's grave. And well, my mother died when I was really young, and um, we'd never been there. Nobody had ever been there. But I used to sneak and go there. So, I never admitted to my family that I used to go there. When I'd come from here, you know, IMS to visit, I would go to the cemetery. So he didn't know that I'd been to the cemetery. And I think that, I mean, it's sort of really unbelievable, the the massive denial about so much pain in our family. And I think this was my father's attempt to resolve it, like in this one few hours, like we were going to solve the family (laughs) problems for generations. And it was really interesting. So I bought some plants and we went to the cemetery and my sister already, this was like 10 in the morning. She already had a whole bunch of, you know, wine in the Seat and she was drinking it and smoking, and it was stressful. I mean, you know, we, <laughs> this was a stressful, it was already stressful. <laughs> Nothing had happened and it was stressful. <laughs> I'm in the back seat going, oh boy, here we go to the cemetery. <laughs> I mean, it was a setup, you know. <laughs> and so we get to the cemetery, and my father can't find the grave. And, um, he doesn't like to admit that he doesn't know it, right? And, and so I'm trying to like get up the guts to say, I know where the grave is because I knew he'd get really mad so he's lost he's furious I mean he my father has no fuse it's not like a short fuse it's no fuse so like I'm kind of building up to the explosion and then you know this is what I'm saying I wish I hadn't done okay so um, so I'm in the back seat and suddenly I turn into this five year old you know and he's like swearing and upset and I said I know where the grave is (laughs) it was like regression it was awful and my father just goes bonkers he's so mad he's like you don't know anything you're just like the old days you know you don't know where it is you know and i did i bit bad it was just like the old i was just i got so mad you know and i just said you know i started arguing with him and he put the car in reverse and he backed into a grave you know And I said, great, Dad, that's good. Why don't you do it again? And he just, like, you know, my father (laughs) gets really angry. He puts it in reverse, and he hits this fountain. And I'm like, great, Dad, like, great. Like, let's let's knock down all the graves in the whole cemetery. And, like, we start, oh, it was awful. I mean, you just have no idea. I mean, it was like, um, and I was, as you sort of like that bench story with the lady that was snoring, (laughs) There, there was a certain point where I realized, it wasn't good, right, you know, (laughs) that I was just egging him on, and he was, you know, and so, but it was one of those moments for me in my lifetime, and I took a vow, I mean, it was just like, it was so painful, it was like my whole lifetime, I looked, and I said, I am not going to do this again, I mean, I took a vow, it was so strong, I am not going to let him get to me, meaning the aversion. You know, and so, you know, I left. I knew he was going to fall, you know, and it's like he ended up in the hospital. And this one day when I went to the emergency room after he fell and everyone had left the room and he said, um, oh, don't, don't worry about me. I'm not going anywhere. And I said, I know, Dad, (laughs) I can finally, you know, you're helpless. I can finally, like, do something for you. And then I had to get him into Mass General. So this is sort of, um a long story, but I'll try to speed this one up, too, because there were so many incidents. He was two two months in Mass General, uh, and it was so hard. He was furious at, at me. It was almost like when I took this vow, like that energy just started to go up and up. He started cranking it up, and I had to move him from Framingham Union, where's you know, right outside of Boston. He did not want to leave Framingham. He was born there. My family, like, you know, he didn't. I mean, it was 20 miles. I'm like, Dad, it's 20 miles, you know. There was no diagnosis for what he had, and he just was furious at me for getting him out of framing him into Boston. So we did that, and there would be times when doctors would leave the room, and I would be standing there outside because it was so bad in the room, and this big guy from South Boston, I mean, really big, tough doctor, he'd come out, slam the door, and he'd go... I can't believe you grew up with that guy. Like he'd be so mad. And this neurologist, one, he, she came out and she said, "I said, how are you doing?" <laughs> and she said, "He's extremely hostile. Like it was just, you know." <laughs> and I'm like, oh, <laughs> interesting, you know. And you know, yeah, I had to take care of the doctors and nurses that used to come out of there. Uh, and so, toward the end, you know, there was this huge goodbye scene with my sister, and there was a, just so much undone, so much unsaid, so much undone, and so much anger. But I kept it together. I didn't. I didn't. I kept my word to myself. I just kept letting them blow up. Didn't. Didn't react. Um, and then, um, right before the end, my uh, oldest niece. Uh, was there. And it was really nice because my sister's kids, who I had really spent a lot of time with raising, kind of got there for me. And they came when they could um, to help out and kind of buffer buffer the, the rage. Uh, uh, yeah, so my sister did this kind of drunken three-hour goodbye scene. And it was very dra- draining. It was very high drama. And my father was getting tireder, tireder, tireder you know, and I could tell that something was going to happen, you know, and so she finally left, and then my oldest niece, who's a fundamentalist Christian, um, started in on him, so like it was my sister, right, three hours, and then, you know, I could tell he did pretty good, considering he had no fuse, and it was the end, and he was really sick, and so then she left, and then um, my niece Faith, the fundamentalist Christian, goes up to him, and He's stressed, and she's going, Okay, Grandpa, <laughs> just go toward the light. And she's holding his hand, and she's stroking it. And she's so sweet. She's so sweet. She's so nice. She's so good-hearted. And she's like, It's okay, Grandpa. Go toward the light. Go toward the light. Go toward the light. And this, there's this building rage. You could just feel it, you know. You know, just... It's okay, Grandpa, go toward the light. And I'm like, oh, boy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. And this, I don't know how he did it. Like, I still don't know how somebody could, you know, the whole city of Boston could hear. He just let out this, I don't want to go toward the goddamn light. Like it's Like, it was just, like, incredible. It was just like, oh, my God. And she just was like, you know, and the whole family, I said, grilled cheese sandwiches in the, in the basement, out, you know, like soul food, go, 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 go. It was so funny. I mean, nurses were scattering. Nobody would come near the room for, like, hours. <laughs> and this is his last moments. I just want to just point this out. You know, this was like the... Black. <laughs> this was not what I had in mind, you know, for the, the great Buddhist ending of, the, you know... <laughs> a little meta, you know. You know, this was not <laughs> this was not what I was hoping for, you know. And then I was I realized that really I wasn't worried that he was going toward the goddamn light anyway, you know. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't like my high worry of my lifetime, you know. In fact, I was really hoping to kind of guide him through the darkness. So I I went over to him and I just like I waited for a while. And this is really amazing, actually, because I felt like it was so hard, those two months, to restrain myself and to just really have compassion. And it took, I could never have done this even a year before. Like it was, it just, like it took all my skill, my whole lifetime of practice to get there at this moment, you know, and to still stay with him with it. And I said, Dad, if you've been wondering what I've been doing my whole life, This is the time to listen. And he got really like quiet. And I said, I'm good at this, like I can help you go through this part of your journey. And I started describing, I said, Don't I said, Don't worry about the light. I said, you know, just keep going. You know, it's like I said, if you could hit this really dark stuff, if whatever because I knew that keeping moving was actually something he understood. He was running from pain his whole life. He was running. And so I just kind of got there for that place in him of running. And we both connected there. And, you know, just before he died, he said, it was amazing, he said, for the first time in his life, he said, thank you for all you've done for me. And it was just like, for him, this might be hard for you to imagine, but for him that was letting go of control in a way that was unfathomable. He was so afraid. He was so afraid to die. He was so afraid of the anger. You know, and it was just like, here's this man that I had been so afraid of, and I could see that instead of the aversion, you know, he just needed this place of being able to dare receive. He couldn't receive a breath. He couldn't receive a sound. He couldn't receive life because of that fear and you know there was that short fuse or no fuse you know so for him that was heroic it's like we forget we forget that any moment where we open it's really heroic any time you stand up to this oppression inside is heroic it's a rebellion it's a revolution it's like and it's so sweet and it's so noble And it's so worthwhile doing. And when you can't do that, seclude yourself. Take a rest. That's what concentration is a rest. It's not meant to be something that um, you think is a failure. It's something good to learn how to do, whether you're walking or sitting or in bed. When you go to sleep tonight, you can learn how to rest the attention through just being with the breath. Mahasi Sayadaw always asked, which breath, in-breath, out-breath, did you fall asleep on? I found that really motivating. Try it. You really stay awake until you fall asleep. You can find out. Over time, you can start paying attention until you know what breath, which rising movement or falling, you fall asleep on and it's not something to judge yourself with if you can't, but it's just finding these ways to inspire ourselves to be awake and to be free and to know that we can do it. So let's sit for a minute. There might be a part three. (laughs) May we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm.